The Six-Day War was a wide-ranging and dynamic war fought on three fronts. Now, if you actually deconstruct the war, you'll find that it wasn't a single war. It was either three separate wars or maybe even four separate wars. Uh, there was the aerial and ground war in Egypt and the Sinai Desert. There was the war fought in cities against Jordan in Jerusalem and the West Bank. And there was a third, perhaps fourth war fought in the mountainous Golan Heights against Syria. In the cabinet meeting justifying the preemptive strike, Moshe Dayan declared the reason for this war, saying, After hearing reports on the military and diplomatic situation from the prime minister, the defense minister, the chief of staff, and the head of the IDF intelligence, the government has determined that the armies of Egypt, Syria, and Jordan are deployed for a multi-front attack that threatens Israel's existence. It is therefore decided to launch a military strike aimed at liberating Israel from encirclement and preventing the impending assault by the United Arab Command. You see that the intention of the war was just to wrestle Israel out of its predicament. In the end, we'll see that the war accomplished goals that it wouldn't have imagined in a million years would be feasible. Now, before the war began, it was intended to be against the Egyptians alone. Moshe Dayan, who was overseeing the battle, he made it clear to everyone, this is a war against Egypt. Egypt is the primary aggressor. Egypt is the one that has instituted the naval blockade against Israeli shipping. They're the ones who closed the Straits of Tehran. And therefore, the war is against them, and we're going to ignore Jordan and Syria. Now, the reason for this is because they re- Israel did really did not want to have a war with Jordan and Syria. They didn't have the resources to fight the three-front war. It was an all-out assault, all-or-nothing attack against Egypt. Now, they had placed all their eggs in one basket and dedicated all the resources to the south. They could not afford to open up a second or a third front. To the Jerusalem command officers, he told them, if the Jordanians attack you, you're on your own. Hold the line. Don't bother asking for reinforcements because you're not getting any. And by the time, hopefully, we deal with the Egyptians, we'll come help you. They imagined that would take somewhere between three days to a week. There was no plan at all for taking Jerusalem or taking the West Bank Bank, or taking the Golan. All that is because – all that happened because the war developed uh, in such a way, making that feasible. So what's the plan? The plan called for a preemptive strike beginning with an aerial attack to destroy the Egyptian Air Force followed immediately by a lightning ground assault. The aerial attack was called Operation Focus, Mivtza Moked, and the objective was to gain total air supremacy before the ground attack. And there was an assumption that a UN-imposed ceasefire would most likely be implemented within 72 hours. And therefore, once they began the ground assault, they placed a tremendous premium on speedy acquisition of territory because they recognized that whatever you grab during war, 
you could use as a bargaining chip for future negotiations. They decided to abandon Gaza. Gaza, remember, was under the auspices of the Egyptians, but it was mostly civilian. They decided to not go directly for Sharm el-Sheikh. Because Sharm el-Sheikh, if you look at a picture of the sign, it's all the way in the bottom corner. It's very hard to access to access it logistically. But they figure once they attack the Egyptian forces in Sinai and they destroy them, then they can make the trip to Sharm el-Sheikh and then eventually Gaza will fall. To actually pull off the, the war, they undertook a complex deception and diversion plan. They published pictures of soldiers on leave. They made sure that the beaches were full of soldiers. They withdrew forces. They made it appear that there wasn't going to be an attack at all. If it was going to be an attack, they sent out some double agents. They had a, a double agent by the name of Rafat al-Gamal, who was called Jack Biton, who was an Israeli double agent. And he convinced the Egyptians that Israel was planning to attack, but it was planning only a ground invasion, not an aerial attack. Incidentally, this spy, the the Egyptians, they believe that he was loyal to them to the end, and he's a big hero in Egypt, uh, but he's a big hero in Israel as well. Additionally, another diversion, they made the Egyptians believe that if there was a ground assault, the assault would not come from the north, part of the Sinai, but from the south part of Sinai. The entire uh, south border of Israel, so Eilat's a tip, but going from all the way from the south, it has an enormous uh, border with Sinai. So if Israel was attacking, it's critical to know where to station your defense positions. And they made the Egyptians believe that they're coming from the south, when in the end they came from the north. So for example, they undertook these deep reconnaissance missions all the way down uh, through the Gulf of Aqaba. They were dragging landing craft to a lot from the Mediterranean, giving the impression that it's going to be a naval attack going south from a lot to uh, uh, to Sharm el-Sheikh, when in the end they didn't go south at all. They went on the northern part of the Sinai. Now, the Arabs, they were very overconfident, very cocky. Uh, in the words of one commander after the war, while we were preparing for parades, they were planning for war. And they were very sloppy in their execution of their war effort. There was confusion in Sinai. The soldiers were not prepared, not militarily. Some, some were, some weren't, of course. Uh, they had a class system where the officers were from a much higher class structure than, the, uh, than their soldiers – so they wouldn't interact in a natural way that would be conducive for dealing with contingencies that come up in battle. Many of the soldiers were uh, without food, without equipment. There was desertions as a result. It wasn't clear what the plan was. So, for example, the 124th and 125th Brigade was moved to positions ten, uh, four times within 10 days. They also had in intel that they ignored that Israel would be attacking uh, from the north. Uh, but regardless, it wouldn't matter. Even if they were a little sloppy, there was such a sheer disparity between the forces of the Egyptians, the power, the numbers, uh, and the Israelis, it wouldn't matter. So for so just a kind of an oversight of, of what the dis uh, discrepancy was here. 
the Egyptian, Jordanian, Syrian, plus Iraqi, Moroccan, Libyan, Tunisian, and Saudi Arabian forces, all of them joined up against Israel, uh, was about 900 fighter jets that they had compared to 200 for the Israelis. The Arabs had more than 5,000 tanks, which is about five times what the Israelis had. Half a million men compared to 200,000 and change, mostly reserve. And of course, they had political support. The Arabs had all the political initiative. They had the Russians behind them, and they had each other, all the Arab states. Israel was essentially alone. Uh, They had one friend, the United States, that wasn't quite an ally. And they had one ally in France that disavowed them the week of the war, that they were alone. Now, the attack was launched at 7.10 on June 5th of 1967. Nearly 200 planes from different bases all over Israel, they all took off and with the plan to rendezvous over 11 targets between 20 and 40 minutes away. Uh, This, like we said, was an all-out assail on the Egyptians. They left only 12 planes to protect and patrol the entirety of Israel's airspace. Uh, And the first great miracle of many of the war was the fact that this attack came as a total surprise. Uh, The midnight beforehand, several hours before the attack, attack was launched, there were intel reports of intense Israeli activity uh, and that was fed to the Egyptian headquarters. Uh, but the head of the army, Amr, he was at a party all night in Cairo. Uh, the general in charge of the Sinai, Murtagi, he was on vacation in Ismailia. We'll see about Ismailia in a little bit. That's one of the towns right on the Suez. The commander of the Egyptian Air Force was at his daughter's wedding. It's a great mystery where Nasser was. Nasser was, no one knows where Nasser was. And then the morning, the defense minister, he went to sleep a few hours before the war began with very strict instructions not to be awakened. Moreover, when the Egypt, when the Jordanians, Jordanians had very advanced radar capabilities. So they saw a huge wave of Egyptian jets taking off and heading towards Egypt. So they radioed the word, a secret word for war, which was the Arabic word for grape, to Cairo. But the previous day, Egypt had changed the frequencies and thus the message came all garbled and it was totally indecipherable. So before the war began, they ignored all the intel. And as the war was beginning, those precious few moments, the message was sent and it didn't arrive. Another great miracle. Amr, the field marshal, he was traveling to Sinai to meet with commanders. So he had with him that morning. And they actually crossed paths, all the Israeli jets and the plane carrying the head of the Egyptian army. But there were some rebel factions amongst the military. And he was worried that he's going to land in one of the military bases and they're going to shoot him down. So he gave very strict instructions not to shoot down any planes. 
that day. Thus, when the Israelis are coming to attack, the essentially the entire air defense system of Egypt is effectively shut down. And that's why when the Israelis came there and they exposed themselves, they didn't get, no one fired at them, which is just remarkable. They were able to do whatever they wanted and effectively win the war. So the Israeli jets are flying very low. They're about 30 feet off the ground to avoid detection by radar. Uh, Egypt had very antiquated radar detection uh, sites. They maintained strict radio silence. They told their pilots, the average age, 23, if you have a malfunction, you eject out of your plane and let it crash. It's so critical that you maintain absolute silence because otherwise you may uh, threaten the mission. They knew the location of every single Egyptian plane, the name and rank of its pilot, and even the voice. They had such incredible in- intelligence about that. Now, the Egyptians themselves, they flew daily patrols uh, on the chance that an Israeli air attack would be mounted. But they assumed that if Israel would mount an attack, it would begin at dawn. And therefore, that morning, they had finished their patrols, and they all landed. So 7.15, the Israeli jets take off. All the Egyptian pilots, they're all eating breakfast and drinking coffee. The only four planes, only four military planes in Egyptian skies are four unarmed training planes. That day, the wind factor was zero, and the visibility, perfect. And the strategy was, you get to these sites, the first thing you do is bomb the runways. Next, you go for the long-range bombers. These are the bombers that theoretically could bomb Tel Aviv and other major cities in the heart of Israel. After you bomb those planes, you move on to the fighter jets, and then you take care with all the missiles and the radar and all that stuff. They had developed, along with the French, certain tarmic shredding penetration bombs. These are bombs, 180 pounds each, that they would drop them and they would fall down by parachute. And then as they're hovering over the runway, they would be rocket propelled deep into the concrete and would explode a few seconds after impact and would have a series of explosions as well. Each one of those bombs would leave a crater 15 feet wide and 5 feet deep. And it also had delayed fuses, which prohibited the Egyptians from trying to fix the runway. And they would absolutely riddle these runways with these bombs. One of the runways, they dropped a hundred of them in less than an hour. So the runways are destroyed. Now what do you have? The general in charge of the uh, the Israeli Air Force, Moti Hod, he said famously, he would repeat this again and again to his pilots, a fighter jet is one of the most powerful weapons in the world, in the air. On the, on the ground, it's utterly defenseless. Runways are destroyed, the rest of the planes are sitting ducks. And they have freedom to bomb and to strafe them at will. Moreover, they had successive waves. It was all time to perfection. Firstly, they told each one of the pilots, your objective is you get back to Israel with not a drop of fuel. 
So you do three or four passes over the airfields and return with just enough fuel to get you home. They do the 20-minute return flight. Seven minutes, they refuel and rearm. Ten-minute break for the pilot, and he heads back. And they coordinate, staggered in a way that all these airfields are under repeated, uninterrupted assault again and again by successive waves of jets. The Egyptians, they would also refuel and rearm their planes. Their turnaround time, not seven or eight minutes, eight hours. Now, I guess if you have so many planes, you can afford to be a little sloppy. There was one base that Israel left untouched. That's the runway in El Arish. El Arish is a coastal town. It's the largest city in the Sinai, and it's several miles south of Rafah in Gaza. And Israel had expected to turn it into a military airport for their own transports to uh, pass supplies and ammunition and food to their troops in the Sinai. Additionally, the Israelis spared the Cairo International Airport because it's full of civilian flights and such. But then they got reports that there's a bunch of MiGs of Russian fighter jets there. So one of the Israeli aces by the name of Ron Pecker, he flew there with a team. They flew over the Cairo airport. They saw the MiGs were nestled next to Boeing's. They had hid their MiGs next to passenger planes. And he got strict strict instructions from Mati Hod, from the director of the Air Force, bomb the MiGs, not the Boeing's. They managed to hit both of them, squarely and destroy them and leave everything else intact. Field Marshal Amr, he eventually landed as well in the Cairo uh, airport. He had taken off from Sinai and every place, for 90 minutes he's trying to land, and every every Egyptian base is absolutely ablaze. So he too was forced to land in the civilian port. And at 10.35, a mere three hours after the operation had begun, Motihod went to Chief of Staff Rabin and told him the Egyptian Air Force has ceased to exist. At that point, it was clear that whatever war would ensue, Israel would have total air supremacy. The Egyptian pride did not allow them to swallow this bitter pill. So instead, on the radios, they had proclaimed lies that 86 Israeli planes are shot down with only two Egyptian losses. Israel lost 75% of its air power. Our air force is bombing and shelling Israeli towns and cities. Tel Aviv is burning. The oil refineries in Haifa are aflame. And for a while, actually, Nasser himself believed this because everyone was terrified of telling him the truth. Uh, he called King Hussein of Jordan and he tells him, he urges him to attack. You have to grab as much land as possible before the Americans force a ceasefire. He tells him, listen, our forces are now barreling through the Negev, through the southern desert in Israel. You should come down south with your troops in the West Bank and let's meet meet up and create a unified force. On this basis of these lies, 
Jordan, Syria, and Iraq, they attacked Haifa and Netanya and other cities by air. And Russia, who was the ally of the Arabs, they withheld from imposing a ceasefire to allow Egypt to achieve its objectives. So the, the lie came back to bite them. Because they had professed to be having such success, the Rush, their Russian allies said, oh, we're not going to force a ceasefire. We want them to have as much success as they can. By the time the truth hit, they concocted a total lie that it wasn't Israeli planes, it was American and British planes. And this conversation, like we said last week, was tapped by the Israelis and they released it two days later, embarrassing everyone involved, where King Hussein of Jordan and President Nasser of Egypt are planning to create this fabrication. On day five of the war, Nasser appears on the television and he informs the citizens of Egypt that their country's defeat and major setback and surprises the entire world by announcing his resignation. Hundreds of thousands of sympathizers poured into the streets. They held mass demonstrations throughout Egypt and across the Arab world, begging him to reconsider. And the next day, he retracted his resignation and resumed his helm at the leader of the Arabic world. There are those that posit that Nasser himself was the one who orchestrated all those demonstrations to uh, gain the support, show that he has, still has support of the people, even after this humiliating and crushing defeat. These pilots, as we'll see in a little bit, after they refueled and attacked Egypt several times, they went on to destroy the air forces of Jordan and Syria and even destroyed aircraft in Iraq, in the, in the western Iraqi airbase called H-3. All told, within the first several hours of the war, roughly 450 Arab planes are destroyed, the overwhelming majority of them on the ground with 26 losses for Israel. At 8 p.m., after the initial news of the success of the air attack, the fateful ground offensive began. The next two days, the world is going to see in Sinai the largest taint battles since World War II. The Egyptians, they're dug in. They have heavily fortified lines surrounded surrounded by sand dunes with anti-tank weapons, with artillery zones, underground bunkers, hidden gun emplacements and trenches, and all their positions are surrounded by minefields. They have 100,000 men, endless artillery, 1,000 modern tanks. The Russians gave them the best, newest equipment compared to what the Israelis had. Uh, which are essentially World War II vintage was leftovers from the American uh, Americans in World War II, and they're sitting there and they're waiting. The Israeli plan called for a three-pronged attack, three divisions, 700 tanks. The whole night they had amassed along the border, camouflaging themselves, being absolutely silent on the radio. And their objective was to destroy the fortified Egyptian infrastructure to trap and encircle the enemy army and armor and destroy it as they attempt to break out, to further penetrate into Sinai beyond the initial defenses, 
cut off the Mitla Pass, which is the escape route outside of Sinai, and trap the remaining Egyptians and essentially destroy the Egyptian army. If that sounds like an ambitious plan, it's because it was. Uh, they essentially said, we're going to destroy everything the Egyptians had. They put it all in Sinai. We're going to create a death zone for them. These three divisions are headed by some of the great heroes of Israeli military history. In the north, you have General Israel Tal. He's called Talik. His name, his nickname was Talik. He was one of the world's experts on armored warfare. And his objective was to advance along to the northern axis to seize the vital juncture of Rafah, which is in the south of Gaza, to head towards the city of El Arish, and to eventually power the way through Sinai all the way along the northern coast until they reach the end of, of, of Sinai. This General Tal, he, in 1964, only three years before the war, he had taken over the Israeli armed corps, and he emphasized two qualities. Number one, speed. They recognized that in any war, they would have equipment disadvantages. And they figured they'd have to compensate with usage of speed and of long-distance shooting. He retrained all the Israeli gunners and told them, we have to try to hit targets a kilometer and a half away. Whereas the Arabs, they normally only fired their tank guns from between a distance of 200 to 500 meters, perhaps even closer. In this enormous tank battle of the Sinai, it became very critical, these two qualities. This Israel Tal, a decade after the Six-Day War, he would go on to design the Merkava tanks. Israel built their own tanks, some of the best tanks in the world. Merkava, it's based upon the lessons learned in the Six-Day War and the Yom Kippur War of 1973. So that's the Northern Command. The Southern Command is led by perhaps the greatest commander and tactician in Israeli history, General Ariel Sharon, who of course would be the defense minister in 1982 in the Lebanon War and ultimately become the prime minister in 2001 until his stroke in 2005. His mission was to penetrate the Sinai and to attack the very heavily fortified area of Abu Adela and to proceed down that road, that axis towards Bir Gafgafa and finally to Ismailia and the Suez on the edge of the Sinai. And the third, which is the central division, which was between the two, that was led by General Avraham Yafi and he went north of Sharon south of Tal in an area in sandy wastes that were undefended because the Egyptians had deemed that area to be utterly impassable by tanks. And therefore, they said, we'll just leave it open. No one's coming through that. And indeed, it was very hard to get through, but they managed to get through. They lost some tanks along the way, but that was a tremendous benefit because he was able to isolate those two Egyptian forces and to prevent reinforcements and coordination and communication between the two. Now, the Egyptians, they're entrenched. And to defeat an entrenched fortification, generally speaking, with raw power, you need an overwhelming three-to-one advantage 
in armor at a minimum. Now, Israel, they had a disadvantage in numbers. And therefore, they had to come up with creativity and with finesse in order to compensate. The first thing is that, as we mentioned earlier, it was about speed. They would charge and fight with reckless abandon. They kept the turrets open, and that would assist in the speedy attack, but unfortunately, it left many uh, many of the tank uh, commanders exposed to enemy fire, and unfortunately, sadly, many were injured and killed in that first thrust of day one, but it was all about speed. You evade the minefields, you try to catch them by surprise, and to be very mobile and be darting from position to position, you shoot, you maneuver to the next position. If a tank gets damaged, we're not repairing it. Leave it there, the crew jumps to the next tank, and keep on trucking. Now, they recognized that there are advantages of not being dug in, just like there are advantages of being dug in. One of the distinct disadvantages of the dug-in positions is that it's very hard for it to change direction. So if you could find a way to get to the rear of a dug-in tank, you got it. So what the Israelis did is they overran through the fire of the uh, uh, of the fortified positions, overran and encircled them from behind and destroyed them. And you see in every front in the Sinai, there was an effort made to go beyond the fortified position and encircle them from behind. Additionally, Egyptian tanks would often travel in tight bunches. And using speed and maneuverability, it makes it very easy to pick on big groups. But additionally, when someone is in a big group, when a tank is amid a big group of other tanks, they have a very difficult time to maneuver. And additionally, because Israel, as the war is developing in the, on the ground, they have achieved mastery over the skies. Therefore, they would call in air support to help enable the lead elements of the advance. Now, Israel suffered very heavy casualties at the initial stages of this assault, but they're penetrating very, very fast. The lies keep on coming from the Egyptians. They're lying to themselves and they're lying to the world. And thus, as the Israeli tanks, as they penetrate further and further into the Sinai, the next wave, the next group of entrenched positions are totally not ready for them. They think that all the Israeli attacks were stunted and now we're counterattacking into the Negev. So when they see a barrage of very, very speedy Israeli advances, they're totally not prepared and they start to panic. One Israeli commander noted that when they got to the Egyptian uh, Egyptian fortified area, they see the Egyptians scurrying around like akhbarim, like mice. As many of the officers, they panicked and they fled. Many of them would be later court-martialed. Troops abandoned their position after the commander died. Uh, Israel always had a policy that the officers always lead the attack. And that's why an astonishingly high percentage of the fatalities were officers. But the rule was, if the leader goes down, it's always next man up. That ideal was highly emphasized in the psyche of the soldier. Whereas the Egyptians, if their officer went down, there was chaos and confusion 
and oftentimes they would just flee. This initial attack was successful on all fronts. In the north, Tal powered through the, the, the northern axes. The city called Khan Yunis fell at 10, Rafa with heavy fighting at noon. The Egyptian fortifications at Jiradi, which is at a vital juncture on the way to El Arish, were captured and they head to El Arish. In the center, uh, Yafi, he intercepted a, a force of Egyptian tanks who were heading north. And I saw in a documentary where they interviewed this uh, Avram Yafi, he describes about what happened. So they cornered and encircled this force of tanks and everyone came out and they all surrendered. And they had thousands of prisoners. And they didn't have enough supplies for all of them. So they sent all the soldiers home. And they only kept the officers. And he says that these people were like in disbelief. What, you're just letting us go? He says, yeah, just go. And they started walking south. And now they have 200 kilometers of sand and heat ahead of them with no water or food or supplies. And uh, thousands, we know, uh, died along the way. In the south, Sharon, he undertook an astonishingly elaborate, innovative, and meticulously planned attack on the Abu Adela fortifications. This battle is the most complex battle in Israel's history. In the United States' army, there's a Combat Studies Institute. They publish a 150-page book about this Abu Ordela battles of 56 and 67. The plan of battle emphasized concentration of force, labyrinthine coordination. There were so many moving parts of this plan. It was fought at night to neutralize the advantages of prepared fortification. It uses a surprise and all these maneuvers, close combat, attack from the rear. I tried to read up about this. It's so detailed and so intricate, uh, the war. Sharon, later in his book, would write... What I had in mind was a closely coordinated attack by separate elements of our forces on the Egyptian trench lines, tank and artillery from the north, from the west, and from the east in a continuously unfolding of surprises, each force securing the flank of its neighbor. It was so complex, this attack, that it managed to isolate the various parts of the Egyptian defense and thus, their entire network, every, everything that they had planned in defending the enemy was all, uh, was all dismantled. Indeed, in the initial assault, the Jews prevailed at every battle. Uh, Raful Eitan, who would go on to become chief of staff and a politician, not to be confused with Rafi Eitan, who was an intelligence officer and also a politician, uh, he said, quote, apparently, Someone in heaven was watching over us. Every unintended action they took and every unintended action we took always turned out to our advantage. The offensive was very brutal. There was fierce Egyptian resistance, but it was a decisive Israeli victory. There were enormous casualties on the Egyptian side. There was heavy losses on the Israeli side as well. But it was much better than expected, and Israel was able to divert resources to the growing war with Jordan by Jerusalem. Now, Field Marshal Amr made a fatal decision that 
was the last nail in the coffin for the Egyptian army. He commanded all Egyptian forces to retreat back across the Suez as soon as possible. Chaos and madness and confusion ensued in the haste of the Egyptian retreat. They abandoned weapons and military equipment and hundreds upon hundreds of vehicles. Uh, Many Egyptian soldiers were cut off from the units and they were all on their own. Thousands died just by being stranded. Sharon, he encountered an entire armored brigade that had totally abandoned its equipment in perfect condition. There's tanks and vehicles, everything, and no humans. And concurrently, Avraham Yafi, he had captured the commander of that brigade, and he's like, where's your stuff? So he tells him, well, we just left it. He says, well, why would you leave equipment that's millions of dollars and very valuable in war, which we're in, why would you leave it alone? So the commander tells him, he says, well, they told us to leave. But they didn't tell us to destroy the tanks. They just said, leave, so we just left. And of course, now Israel has Egyptian tanks that they could use uh, to their discretion. Field Marshal Amr, after the war, a few months later, would commit suicide when it became clear to him that he would face trial for his conduct and his decisions and would be executed. With the Egyptians fleeing and with the Israeli armored forces in hot pursuit and with the Israeli Air Force totally unopposed in the air, the result was an absolute devastation of the Egyptian army. Their tanks are exposed in the desert roads. They're easy targets from the air for the for the IAF, the Israeli Air Force, and for the pursuing tanks. But they were all rushing towards the exit. Sinai has one door, basically. It has two doors, really. There's the Mitla Pass, and there's the Gidi Pass. Isra- the Israeli forces managed to cut off the Gidi Passes. Pass. But they had sent an advance team under the leadership of Colonel Shadmi with 10 tanks ahead of the Egyptian forces, get there and block the Mitla Pass. And let's have them surrounded and destroy them. That group of 10 tanks raced ahead and along the way, four of the tanks ran out of fuel. So they were towed by the others. They got there, they dug in, and they just did not allow any of the Egyptian forces to escape. They blockaded them. And all the other Israeli forces were funneling all the Egyptian forces towards the Mitla Pass, towards the death trap. And now you have the planes just flying over them back and forth and just strafing them mercilessly. There's the iconic pictures you could look online of the Mitla Pass and the road leading towards it. It became a crowded, chaotic bottleneck of destruction for the Egyptian army. There's thousands of burning Egyptian vehicles piling up along the street. And of that blockade, only one Egyptian tank managed to break through. So you have this really bizarre situation where there's a small contingency tightening the noose on the escape route. And the Israelis themselves are coming to try to 
reinforce that group. And the Egyptians are desperate to flee, and they're all bottled up. And nighttime's falling. I want to read to you from a book called The Arab-Israeli Wars, by, written by Chaim Herzog. Chaim Herzog was a president of Israel involved in every one of the Israeli-Arab wars. In the confusion that ensued in the general area of the approaches to the Mitla Pass, as Israeli forces struggled to reach Shadmi's small unit, holding out and blockading the pass, and Egyptian units equally desperately trying to reach the pass and break through in order to reach the Suez Canal, an Israeli tank company became entangled with a column of Egyptian tanks. So you have a column of tanks, half of them are Israeli, half of them are Egyptian, and it's the middle of the night, and they're all traveling together. How awkward is that? It was by now dark, and it was impossible to to distinguish which tanks were Egyptian and which were Israeli. The Israelis realized that they had blundered into the midst of an Egyptian column, but the Egyptians, who were now rushing westward in a panic-stricken drive, were unaware of the identity of the tanks that had joined them in the dark. The Israeli commander ordered his unit to continue in the column as if nothing untoward were happening along the road for a short distance. And then, on a given order, to veer off the road sharply to the right. They were then to switch on their searchlights and shoot at any tank that remained on the road. This they did in the process they destroyed a complete Egyptian tank battalion. Meanwhile, Shadmi's forces fought a battle against heavy odds all through the night, being saved by the ammunition and fuel that they're able to pick up on the battlefield from the abandoned Egyptian tanks. The results in Sinai were overwhelming. There was the capture of Sinai itself. On day four, they reached the Suez. They captured Sharm al-Sheikh. They relieved the blockade on the Straits of Tehran. They captured Gaza. The losses were astonishing. 10,000 to 15,000 killed or missing for the Egyptians. 5,000 captured, including 500 officers. In the ensuing months, Nasser would admit that 80% of all their military equipment of the entire Egyptian army was lost in the Sinai. Over 10,000 vehicles of different varieties and 800 tanks. The Israelis also had heavy losses, but not to be compared. Israel lost 300 men and had 1,000 wounded, which is a heavy price to pay but obviously is totally lopsided, especially given the circumstances at the beginning of the war. One final note on this war with Egypt, the USS Liberty. The USS Liberty was an intelligence gathering ship, and it was snooping around in the Mediterranean around 15 miles from El Arish. Now, America did not tell Israel about this plane, And Israelis reported that they were being shelled from the sea. So they sent a squadron of planes who flew there and checked it out. The Israelis claim that there were no flags, no American flags on the boat, and it looked very similar to an Egyptian ship. So the jet fighter, and along with Israeli naval motor torpedo boats, they bombed the ship 
and sadly and tragically killed 34 crew members, wounded 131, 171, and severely damaged the ship, which had to limp back to Malta. Now, Israel apologized for the attack and paid multiple rounds of reparations for the families of the victims. The Americans, some of them at least, insist that there was American flags on the sh- uh, on the ship. The actual pilot who piloted that attack, uh, someone by the name of, uh, his name was uh, Spectre, Yiftach Spectre. He was the greatest ace in Air Force history. Uh, he was the one who shot them. Uh, it's hard to believe that he would miss an American flag. Uh, what is actually what actually happened with the USS Liberty is a great mystery. But regardless, the first war or two wars with the Egyptians was an overwhelming success. Egypt is done. What about Jordan and Syria? Uh, the war with Jordan. So the, the the war it developed. It unfolded sequentially, and this thing worked out really well. One of the great miracles of the war is that they had a war on three fronts, but it was done sequentially. First, the focus was Egypt, then the focus was Jordan, and the last two days, the focus was Syria. And they were able to uh, always supply the focus, the area of focus with the requisite forces. The war with Jordan was the fiercest of the three, and that's for several reasons, but one of them primarily is the fact that the Israeli aerial advantage was most minimal due to the proximity of civilian centers and holy sites. So they could not use, they cannot flex their aerial muscles to attack the Jordanians as much as they could in the desert of Sinai. And now Jordan, as we mentioned earlier, Jordan was deceived by the Egyptian lie that they had had a massive counterattack and were beating down Israel. King Hussein heard these false claims that Israeli airfields are aflame, there's massive Israeli losses. When he saw on his radar these just flood of Israeli jets who were returning to Israel after bombing the airfields to refuel and go back to attack Egypt, Nasser told Hussein, those are our planes. And our plane's going to attack Israel. And he says, "What? Yeah, you, now, now is your chance to try to grab and seize as much as you can. And the Israelis, they urged restraint. Uh, and King Hussein told the United Nations representative, whose name was Oddbull, they started the battle while well, they are receiving our reply by air. They attacked and they bombed Netanya and they prompted the Syrian bombing of Israeli settlements in the Galilee. And they even prompted Iraqi jets to attack settlements north of the West Bank. Now, previously, there was a debate in the Knesset, in the cabinet, regarding whether or not to launch a preemptive aerial assault on Egypt alone, or on Egypt and Jordan and Syria simultaneously. Ultimately, Rabin ruled out a preemptive attack against the Jordanian Air Force, but after they attacked Netanya, permission was granted. 
They attacked Netanya with their Jordanian hawkers refueling at 12.30 of day one. The Air Force, they attack. Within nine minutes, the bases at Mafrak and Amman, the two air bases, they're destroyed. The runways, the control towers are bombed. 30 minutes later at one o'clock, there's 21 defenseless jets again on the ground that are absolutely destroyed. The aforementioned radar facility that the Jordanians had, it too was destroyed. The Israeli jets attacked some Jordanian forces on the ground, knocked out dozens of planes, and destroyed a 26-truck convoy replete with ammunition. And Israeli planes also went into Iraq, into the uh, base called the H-3, and destroyed 22 jets. But that was basically it. And as there was ongoing escalation from the Jordanians, the Israeli response escalated, and eventually the war unfolded in the way it did. In Jerusalem, there was Jordanian shelling, followed by Israeli reprisal, and they unveiled a new weapon that they had. Uh, The Israelis had developed a surface-to-surface missile with France called the L, and they had taken this powerful uh, this powerful missile, and they were bombing Jordanian posts. There was one surrendering Jordanian soldier who was so terrified by this attack, he thought the Israelis had dropped an atomic bomb on his position. And there were debates that were mounting what as to what to do in the political circles, as to what to do with Jordan. Dayan, this is still day one. The war, the ground invasion is now taking on uh, in Egypt. And Dayan was adamant that this is a war against Egypt, against Egypt. So we'll respond to Jordanian aggression, but we're not going to invest heavy resources towards that front. Others, primarily Menachem Badian, they saw this as a golden opportunity to capture the old city and to reunify Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was suffering tremendously so for the first 20 years of the of the state. Because if you look at a map, you'll see that the West Bank, it encircles Jerusalem. So it is isolated, it's cut off. And during the 48 war, Jewish Jerusalem was effectively besieged by the Arabs. If you actually travel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, you'll notice they have an installation along the side of the highway of bombed out convoy trucks when and this is from the 48 war the war of independence the arabs had blockaded the highway the only highway to get through from the center of the city from tel aviv to jerusalem by an area called latrun they were bombing any convoys coming with provisions with medicine with food with water with with surgeons with doctors and they have an installation of all those trucks from 1948, alongside the highway. Now, what they did in 48 uh, to circumvent the blocked road, they made what's called the Burma Road, which is a road going through the mountains deemed impassable, which put an end to the month-long siege. After the war, with the Armistice Agreement of 1949, the Arabs agreed to allow convoys to go through 
but they were frequently harassed by sniper fire. So Israel had to create a bypass road. There was a road that bypassed the whole area and and was able to uh, be a a conduit uh, unmolested with Israel. In the initial stages of the war with Jordan, one of the first things that was allowed, permission was given to take over Latrun and to avoid that whole uh, circuitous route from the rest of the country to Jerusalem. In the end, they ended up getting the Old City and the West Bank and all the big cities in the West Bank. And of course, Jerusalem was reunified and things worked out fantastically. Now, the war with Jordan, it wasn't like the open space war of Sinai. Uh, this is in cities. There's a lot of street by street fighting, house by house fighting. It's not really, the conditions are not suitable for tank warfare. Uh, also, uh, a lot of the areas are mountainous, uh, not necessarily ones where you have access to the roads. If you're trying to find a tank battle in a city and you ca- you don't have access to the road, uh, your tanks are very useless, and therefore that whole area geographically favors the defenders. It gives them various ambush points. It pr- it provides places for bottleneck, where the attacking forces have to all coalesce in one location. Uh, and the Jordanians supplemented this with strategically located fortified positions, trenches, trenches, bunkers, ammunition sto- uh, storerooms. And gun emplacements. Jordan had around four, between forty-five and fifty thousand soldiers, part of the Arab Legion, as they were called. They had sent, as we mentioned earlier, a brigade that was near the Dead Sea in the south of the West Bank. They had sent them into the Negev to go meet up with the anticipation of meeting the Egyptians, and of course, that was fiction. Now, along with the Jordanian aerial attacks, there was further Jordanian provocations. There was an aerial barrage of artillery. If you look at the Mir Yeshiva, where I spent many years studying, it's actually built on the border, on the border where the, where, where the no-man zone between Israel and Jordan up to 67. So their building is right there at the border, and if you look on, if you look on the roof, you notice there's four floors. It was it was a, 1967. It was six, it was three floors, and it was hit by a mortar, and it took out ch- a chunk of the roof. And of course, all the students were in the bomb shelters, as all the residents of Jerusalem were. But it took out half of the roof uh, with a Jordanian artillery barrage. Uh, an additional Jordanian provocation was where they crossed the armistice line and they took the government house, which is a UN headquarters between the two countries, and started shooting at Jewish Jerusalem and Ramat Rachel and other places. Additionally, the army intelligence was convinced that the Jordanians would attack Mount Scopus. Mount Scopus was an exclave in Jordan – containing the Hadassah Hospital and the Hebrew University that was only resupplied by periodic UN-supervised convoys. And there was a grave concern that this civilian enclave would be attacked by the Jordanians, that all the the uh, all these provocations 
uh, finally resulted in an Israeli counterattack. There was an attack and an invasion uh, led by General Uzi Narkis. They attacked the Jordanians at the government house. Simultaneously, they attacked Jordan, the West Bank, from all sides, from the north to Jenin, from the west going east, and from all over Jerusalem. The Harel Brigade, famous brigade, they attacked the fortress in Latrun, which they took. And they managed, on the first couple of days, to surround and isolate Jerusalem and begin the assault on Jerusalem. The Jordanian strong points in the north of the city were bombarded. A combined force of paratroopers and tanks crossed the no-man's land uh, in a place called the Mandelbaum Gate and attacked the heavily fortified position called Ammunition Hill, Rivatatachmoshet. One of the most famous battles of the Six-Day War ensued. A four-hour bloody hand-to-hand combat in trenches and bunkers, uh, which ended with the Jordanians defeated and allowing the Israelis to link up their positions with Mount Scopus. If you go to this place today, it's we actually live when, when we lived in Israel, we lived two minutes away from Ammunition Hill. It's still a preserved site. It's it's essentially today a museum for the Six Day War, and it's used uh, as uh, to showcase the wars and the battles of the Six Day War. And then the battles along Jerusalem continued. There were fierce fighting in the whole area. The American colony was taken. The Rockefeller Museum bordering the walls of the old city. Finally, permission was granted to capture Jerusalem. They entered the Lion's Gate uh, from the east of the city. There was a bus there blockading at the entrance. They took a tank and smashed it, shot it at uh, point-blank range. They got into the old city. They found very minimal resistance. Right away, they ran to Temple Mount. And Matagur, who was the commander of the paratroops, he radioed the iconic message that reverberated throughout the Jewish world. Harabait biadenu, Temple Mount is in our hands. The site of Solomon's Temple, the first temple, second temple, the venue, according to Jewish tradition, where Jacob had his dream of angels on ladder, on ladders, where the binding of Isaac had occurred, the holiest site in Judaism, is now in her hands. The paratroopers couldn't find the Kotel because the Kotel that you have today is is serviced by a huge plaza. What the Arabs did when they captured the old city in the Jewish quarter in 1948 was they built these tenements alongside, uh, they built this uh, housing throughout the whole plaza and they would use the little strip Next to the wall, they would use it to throw their garbage, uh, to humiliate the Jews. They asked one of the local Arabs how to get to the Kotel. He directed them there. There's famous pictures of uh, the chief rabbi of the chaplain of the army, uh, Rabbi Gorin, blowing a chauffeur, saying these blessings. Uh, It was absolute jubilation and elation. 19 years, Jews were barred from visiting 
the Kotel, the Western Wall, or Temple Mount. And now it's in the hands of Jews. Uh, Moshe Dayan, with great pomp and fanfare, he made sure that everything was perfectly set for the picture and the video. He walked once in. He says, no, that wasn't good. He walks back out, made sure the photographer is perfectly positioned. He marches in with Narcus on one side, Rabin on the other side. He walks over to the Kotel, places a note in the wall in the Kotel. Yitzhak Rabin declares, this is the peak of my life. He was hoping and yearning that maybe he will have some part to play in the reunification of Jerusalem and the capturing of its holy places. After the old city fell to the Israelis, the Jordanians essentially withdrew to the East Bank, and Dayan authorized a total capture of all of the West Bank. There's hundreds of thousands of Arabs themselves, just civilians, who also fled and crossed the famous Alenbi Bridge from Israel to the other side of the Jordan. There's amazing footage you can watch online today of the Arab refugees because the, the, that particular bridge was bombed. The Israelis bombed it so the Jordanians would not be able to bring their tanks from the East Bank to the West Bank. But the bridge was still there. The skeleton of the bridge was still there. So you see these families with their stuff on their back, refugees, and they're fleeing across this bombed out bridge towards the East Bank of the Jordan, uh, they were indoctrinated. The Israelis are going to come. They're going to kill everyone, men, women, and children, and they all fleed. And a week later, they all came back. Uh, within three days, all of the major cities and population centers of the West Bank, Jericho, Bethlehem, Shechem, Nablus, Hebron, Ramallah, all these are in Israeli hands. On June 7th, the third day of the war, by 8 p.m. in the evening, both sides had accepted the United Nations ceasefire, ending the fighting in the West Bank, leaving Israel in total control of all the territory. King Hussein had lost about half his kingdom, but he assumed that he'll still get it back. Because the way it had worked till then was that ceasefires always demand a return to pre-war Lines. Jordan was the smallest Arab army that the Israelis faced, but it actually caused the most damage to Israel. From all the Arab war armies, half the Israeli casualties came from this intense, close combat with the Jordanians. On to Syria. The Golan Heights Plateau is this mountainous range overlooking the Galilee. For years and decades, it was the vantage point from which the Syrians would shell Jewish settlements, Jewish farmers below, and it oversees the entire region of the Jordan Valley. Uh, It was reinforced with a dense network of fortifications. It had trenches. It had concrete bunkers. It had overlapping fields of fire. And there was a very dense minefield that surrounded the entire area. Uh, In fact, even today, if you walk through the Golan, you'll see many, many signs that say, don't go off the road because there's still mines here. 
50 years later, there's still mines that haven't been tended to. And if you don't want to lose a limb or even your life, it would be wise to not venture away from those paths. Now, surprisingly, despite the fact that Syria was probably most responsible for the provocations that led to the war, in the early initial stages, it was very hesitant to launch a full assault. Why that is, is a great mystery, because ultimately they did launch a third front against Israel, but by that time, Egypt and Jordan were were quelled, and Israel could send all their reinforcements to the north. Uh, They didn't really join the war initially. They contributed with token attacks and, of course, a heavy dose of rhetoric, as Arabs are wont to do. Now, during the first day of the war, as we mentioned earlier, the Syrian planes, they attacked communities north of Israel, including Tiberias. They attempted an attack on the Haifa oil refineries. The Israeli Air Force, as we mentioned, responded. They attacked the Syrian air bases. They followed the same formula. First, you blow up the runways. Then the aircraft on the ground are defenseless. But as the war progressed... Syria intensified its attacks. It launched heavy artillery barrages against Israeli civilian communities. Uh, They actually sent several uh, groups of uh, uh, troops to attack a kibbutz in the Galilee called Tel Dan. And despite these incursions into Israeli territory, which were driven off, but because the bulk of the Israeli troops were still fighting the Sinai, and in the West Bank, they didn't really counterattack. Now, on June 8th, as we mentioned, there was a ceasefire between Israel and Jordan. But the truth is, is that Syria initially accepted that same ceasefire. But five hours later, the barrages resumed. And the state radio in Syria declared, we don't consider ourselves bound by any ceasefire. They apparently believe, no, everyone's trying to figure out why they chose to do this. It's one of the great mysteries of the war. If you're going to open a front, do it simultaneously with the other fronts. But they must have assumed that the formidable defenses of the Golan are impregnable to the Israelis, otherwise they would have attacked it. And with this renewal of Syrian barrages and the Israelis now freed from Sinai in the West Bank, all the armored brigades from the south of the country in huge convoys head north. There's descriptions of these massive traffic jams of just buses and tanks and armored vehicles all traveling north to Syria. On the morning of June 9th, this is the fifth day of the war, the Israeli Air Force began a very intensive three-hour bombing of the Syrian positions in the Golan. This attack was aided by one of the great legends of Israeli espionage, Eli or Eli Cohen. This was a spy who impersonated a South American businessman who moved to Syria and got closely entangled with the political and military echelon And he actually rose the ranks of Syrian politics and and, and military and became the chief advisor 
for the Syrian Minister of Defense. And he provided an enormous, incredible amount of intelligence to the Israeli army over four years. He sent radio, very like kind of James Bondy stuff, where he's sending these radio and, and letters and even appeared a few times in person. Uh, in 1965, the Syrians, they found him and they actually hung him and they still to this day refuse to release his body to Israel. But his most famous achievement was when, as in his position, he had a tour of the Golan Heights and they were showing him all the defensive emplacements uh, and in fortifications there. And he says to them, don't you have sympathy for your soldiers? Look at this. They're sitting in the sun. They need to have trees that provide shade. And he said to them, the eucalyptus trees, they the, the shade that they provide is unmatched. So obviously the Syrians said that's a great idea. They planted by each one of the bunkers a eucalyptus tree. And now when the Israeli airplanes, when they're trying to strafe the Golan Heights, every time they see a tree, they just bomb that place. And after three hours of incessant bombing, the ground invasion begins under the command of General David Elazar. He would go on uh, to uh, infamy, unfortunately, in the, in the Yom Kippur War because he's going to be the chief of staff. Uh, who is going to be sworn in a few months before the Yom War, and he's going to be blamed for the failures of that war in 1973. But he crosses he crosses the armistice lines into Syri- Syrian territory. They ta- attack with bulldozers, and they essentially brute force their way up the hillside. They take the strong points in hand to hand fighting. Uh, in this particular war, the Israeli officers personally lead, them, lead the soldiers into battle. The Syrians panic, and after 27 hours of fighting, they flee and head back to Damascus. And the Israelis, of course, pursue. And they capture the road to the Damascus, and there's nothing stopping the Israeli assault from walking in to the capital of Syria and doing whatever they wanted. And only an intervention led by Russia and the United Nations spared Damascus. Previously, international policy was a ceasefire demanded a retreat to pre-war boundaries. The Israeli conditions, remember they had all the leverage now, their conditions for a ceasefire is no no retreat to pre-war lines. Instead, they get to keep all the land as a bargaining chip in exchange for peace. They'll give the Golan back to Syria, and they'll give the Sinai back to Egypt, and they'll give the West Bank back to Jordan, all in exchange for peace treaties, lasting peace treaties with these three aggressors. Uh, And they made it very clear that Jerusalem is going to be forever off the table. Now, the Russians, uh, they were so alarmed at the speed of the decimation of their Arab allies and they're very fearful of the continued destruction, they agreed to the Israeli proposals in exchange for a ceasefire. So the war ends on June 10th with Israel claiming the Gaza Strip, the West Bank, the Golan Heights, the entire Sinai Peninsula up to the Suez Canal, and of course, 
Jerusalem is reunified. The size of the land more than tripled. Pretty remarkable. And for the first time, they have defensible boundaries. They have strategic depth. Prior, as we mentioned earlier, they were facing real existential threats. At their narrowest, nine miles wide, surrounded by mortal enemies, armed with huge conventional armies and calling for their immediate destruction. Now, the very spaces where these armies had previously threatened the Sinai in the south, the West Bank uh, in the center, and the Golan in the north are now actually controlled by the Israelis. There's an overwhelming feeling of relief, but of joy and elation that's sweeping over the country. The way of life, like now, now it became a viable country. Uh, they take immediately bulldozers. They clear out the entire Kotel uh, Plaza. That Shavuos, which was a few weeks, a week later, uh, it was open to the public. And that's why it became a tradition until this day that the Jews of Jerusalem go to the Kotel on the holiday of Shavuos. I spoke to my father today. He was a mere teenager at the time. He was not yet 14 years old, and he was in yeshiva in Haifa. And he says, the feeling is, is indescribable. He says, you, you could feel the elation for years afterwards. He told me that one of the moments that he'll remember in his life is taking a bus from Haifa and not going to Jerusalem, going through the West Bank. Soldiers everywhere, and this is our land now, going to the Kotel. Now, there was, a, unfortunately, a bad variety of this pride. There was pride that led to arrogance uh, and ignorance of the Arab brooding and regrouping that led to the Yom Kippur War six years later. But there was also a very positive variety of this joy and elation. There was an appreciation. The soldiers on the ground and even the civilians who see this total transformation, this incredible turn of, of events, a nation facing another Holocaust, suddenly everything turns in a matter of a week. And people came back to God. They, they saw the handiwork of God, and they there was a wave of repent called the Balchuvamund. The mo- a movement was spawned at this time where Jews began to re-embrace Judaism and reconnect with their creator thanks to this experience. And there was a hope for peace. Moshe Dayan famously said, after the Six-Day War, I'm waiting for a telephone call from the Arab leaders. We hope to hear they're ready to talk peace. Sadly, peace did not come, or at least not initially. Several months after the war, the leaders of 13 Arab states they gathered at a summit conference in Khartoum in Sudan. And there they pledged to continue their struggle against Israel. And the Khartoum conference famously had the resolution. The Khartoum resolution was quite clear and unequivocal. The three no's. No peace with Israel. No negotiations with Israel. No recognition of Israel. 
I would argue that peace ultimately did come as a result of the Yom Kippur War, as as a result of the Sixth. Peace ultimately did come as a result of the Six Day War, but not until the Yom Kippur War and all of its pain and suffering. In 1977, well, Nasser died in 1970. In 1977, the president of Egypt, Anwar Sadat, uh, they made overtures to Israel. He came, he flew to Israel. He spoke at the Knesset, and they had the, the famous Camp David Accords, uh, which they signed a peace deal with Egypt that remarkably has sustained despite all the upheavals that that country has undergone. In 1994, peace agreements were signed with Jordan, even though there was no exchange of territory, just like uh, in Sinai, they had given back as part of the agreement with Egypt in 1979 was the total and complete retreat of Israeli forces from the Sinai. That was the agreement which the Israelis happily did. They had only established a few scant settlements in Sinai that they gladly withdrew and gave the Egyptians that in exchange for a peace deal. When they made a deal with Jordan in 1994, there was no exchange of of any territory. And I'd imagine that King Hussein wasn't even interested in any territory. He wasn't interested in all the headaches that it brought I think if if Jordan today would want to take responsibility for all the Palestinians living in the West Bank, I think Israel would gladly accept. And what about the Palestinians? Many of them fled to Jordan. And at, right after the war, Israel erected a security perimeter along the Jordan to prevent the refugees from returning. Dayan, he thought it was inhumane. So after a week, he pulled it down and allowed a flood of scattered Palestinians to return home as they had crossed on that bridge. Uh, many did stay in Jordan, and that, that exacerbated the refugee problem because the Arab world always looks at the Palestinians as being a chip, as being... Uh, as being something that they could use to exploit, and therefore they chose not to reintegrate uh, or not to integrate these refugees into the society, rather to keep them as permanent refugees, and many of them have been living there for 50 years in huge refugee camps, uh, just totally uh, being nonproductive in any way. Now, um, Michael Oren, whose uh, excellent book, Six Days of War, is the single best volume on the conflict, he argues that the one of the big winners of the war was actually the Palestinians. He says, previously, if you had spoken about Palestinians before 1967, people assumed you were speaking about Jews who lived in Palestine before Palestine became Israel. Now with the war, it gave them an identity. Uh, and the, the conflict was transformed from being a Arab-Israeli conflict to being a Palestinian-Israeli conflict. And also, really interestingly, it united all the Palestinians to live under one rule. Previously, the Palestinians in Gaza, they were ruled by the Egyptians. The Palestinians in Israel were ruled by the 
Israelis, the Israeli Arabs, and the Palestinians in the West Bank were ruled by Jordan. And now there's a certain degree of unity where they're all ruled by Israel. And it actually is a counterintuitive idea that the Palestinians actually benefited uh, from this war as well. And of course, the most lasting, or at least the most emotional for the Jewish nation aspect of this war is Jerusalem. The yearnings of millennia of Jews was finally actualized. A sovereign state of Jews controlling Jerusalem. Uh, Now, that joy was short-lived because a few hours after the war, the government, primarily Diane again, they ceded Temple Mount to the Muslim Waqf, the Muslim Religious Authority. Uh, I have a counterintuitive, unpopular opinion on this. In my assessment, actually, it's better for us for Temple Mount to be in Muslim hands for several reasons. First of all, it's prohibited for Jews to go there because we are uh, we exhibit ritual impurity, and therefore it's prohibited by Torah law for Jews to go there. If it was in Israeli hands, it's likely that more Jews would would venture there. Uh, additionally, I think you know a lot of people like saying that this is the temple that the Western Wall is Israel's holiest or the Jewish people's holiest site. It's actually not true. The holiest site of the Jewish people is not the Western Wall. The holiest site of the Jewish people is Temple Mount. It's the Holy of Holies, hence the name. And, you know, now there's these arguments about making the Western Wall more egalitarian and more pluralistic. And for us who think about it in historical terms, the idea of turning a holy site into a political game, to political pawn, well, that's sacrilegious. That's unconscionable. Think about what would have happened if the Jews and Israel controlled Temple Mount. The place would hopefully not devolve into being a tourist site, but it would certainly not have that same sanctity. The fact that we know that we're still not there is important. We got to the doorstep of Temple Mount, but we didn't get Temple Mount. There's still another war to be fought. It doesn't have to be necessarily a physical war, but it's good for us to realize, now today is the 50th anniversary of the reunification. It's exactly 50 years today is when Jerusalem was reunified. It's important for us to remember. We have the Kotel, we have the Western Wall, we have the Old City, There's a very strong Israeli security presence on Temple Mount, but it's Temple Mount without a temple. There are still other things there, and there's still another job for us to do. And I think that's one of the most important lessons for us as we reflect on this remarkable, miraculous conflict, an episode in in our history. Uh, one of the happiest and most joyous results of any interaction that we've had with any of our neighbors ever. Miracle upon miracle upon miracle. And we ended up with the crown jewel, Jerusalem, or maybe the crown itself. But we should know that the most important jewel of that crown is still missing. And uh, let us hope, let us pray 
that we too will benefit and merit to be there where the final piece of the puzzle is placed and the final brick on the wall is there and we could again fulfill the mitzvah of building a temple and visiting it and being present with the arrival of Mashiach.